Well, please turn back to uh, Luke chapter 16 and the verses that Neil read to us. Eternal punishment. I wonder what those words make you think. You might think, well, how can a God of love send anyone to eternal punishment? Well, perhaps you don't like to think about it. Perhaps it's too horrific. You know, the idea of punishment that goes on forever with no end. Or perhaps you think, well, why bring it up? You know, it's a nice evening. Can't we have a message about God's love or God's forgiveness and mercy instead? But this is God's word, isn't it? It's here for our good. It's all here for our good. And we need to take notice of it. So we're going to look at these verses, verse 19 through to verse 31. But it's helpful to think, isn't it? What's the context? Why is this story here? Well, it's in a section of Luke's gospel where Jesus was telling a number of parables, a number of stories used to illustrate a particular truth. And we see if uh, you look around, you know, we've got the parable of the lost sheep. In verse 15, we've got the parable of the persistent widow, familiar stories that you'll know. And this one is not so much a parable, but perhaps more of an illustration. And the story itself is kind of is kind of the point. Perhaps there was even some truth in it. Perhaps the characters you know, were, were based on real people. Um, certainly some of it is, is fiction, you know, the sort of idea of communication going on between heaven and hell. Um, that's not real, but some of it may have been based on on real fact. And why is it here? Well, it's put here with the intent to shock. You know, it's certainly not a nice story, is it? It's not easy reading. Um, and it was mainly to warn those people who were listening, uh, among whom were the Pharisees. Uh, and we see, uh, if you look in the preceding verses, that the Pharisees were rich and they loved money. You know, this is a story about a rich man. The Pharisees would fit into that character, into that category. Verse 14, the Pharisees loved money. Uh, the Pharisees also felt secure that Jesus felt like they needed a warning. In verse 15, uh, Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. They felt secure in their position. But Jesus also wanted to tell them that they were in danger. They were in danger of God's judgment. Again, in verse 15, God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. They've been sneering at Jesus, haven't we? We see in those verses for his teaching about good stewardship and the dangers of money and riches. This story was intended to shock them and warn them of the path that they themselves were on. And it's put here, of course, to warn us too in the same way to shock us so that we can avoid the consequences that we read of. And we see, don't we, that it's a story of contrasts and reversals. We see three three major sections. There's life, there's death, and then there's life after death. There's two main characters. There's a rich man who, interestingly, isn't named, uh, but there's a very poor man, Lazarus, the beggar. And there's a lot of details in here. If you read it uh, repeatedly, you pick up different nuances and details that add to the story uh, and make it an interesting uh, uh, parable or story or illustration uh, to spend time thinking about. So we're not going to cover every detail this evening. We haven't got time to do that. But we are going to look at five main things, Okay, five key things that we can see from this story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the first thing in verses 19 to 21 is that we see riches and poverty. Okay, riches and poverty. 
There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we see here, don't we, two men with very contrasting lifestyles. Uh, You might say uh, lifestyles that are, are the extreme opposite of each other. We have firstly the rich man. Uh, What do we know about the rich man? Well, it says that he dressed in purple and fine linen. Purple might make you think of uh, Lydia. Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, she was a dealer in purple cloth. Uh, It basically meant high-end material, expensive cloth that was used to make expensive clothes worn by well-off people. We're told he lived in luxury. You know, you can imagine he would have dined on the finest food. He would have had probably many servants to attend to his every need. Certainly, he wouldn't be you know, doing his own chores or his own housework. And this wasn't the case just on special occasions. It was every day, it says there. Every day he lived in extravagance. You know, this this was somebody who wasn't just well off. He lived an extravagant lifestyle. He didn't just live on the forest side of Loughborough. He lived in Mayfair or Kensington or one of those uh, top London districts. And you can imagine, can't you, the Pharisees would be thinking, you know, on this introduction, they'd be thinking, well, yeah, this, this guy, you know, this is our kind of guy. He's been uh, obviously blessed. You know, the Pharisees themselves were rich. They loved money, as we've seen in verse 14. They, could be, they, they would be thinking, yes, here's someone that we can identify with. He's obviously been blessed by God in this life. And you might say, well, what's the harm in all that? You know, what's the harm in having money? It's not a sin to be rich. And it doesn't say here that he, he came by his riches by any bad means or by fraud or anything like that. Elsewhere in the New Testament, if we look at the letter of Corinthians, Paul um, writes there about um, what the Christians were before they became believers. He says, brothers, consider the time of your calling. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But it doesn't say not any, does it? And that implies that some of them were those things. Some of them perhaps were noble and powerful and uh, wise. But I think what what we should learn from this uh, story uh, and this introduction of the rich man is uh, we should take it really as a sobering reminder that uh, we can have so much in this life but still be unsaved, still be under God's curse and still ultimately perish. You know, we, we say, don't we, if somebody has a, has a nice lifestyle or, or appears to be well off, we say that they're blessed. Uh, but really, you know, we need to remember that the standard of their living is no reflection of whether God's blessing is on them. The other thing that it reminds us of that is great, that great affluence can be a barrier to belief because it tend to, tends to make us forgetful of God, doesn't it? We don't feel our need of him. And it's easy to be content without God. That that describes the rich man here, doesn't it? Content without God. And also, you know, riches can make us, uh, it can mean that we look only to our own interests. And and the other thing we we can learn from this story is that if we do that and ignore the needs of those who are around us, uh, that that is sinful and will lead to God's judgment. Uh, so we can say, can't we, that the rich man was, was contented without God. He didn't feel any need of him. He was committed to pleasure and the finer things in life. Uh, and it did him no good in eternal terms. Well, this is nothing new, is it, or unusual to this passage. And throughout the Bible, we're taught the danger of wealth. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 
It says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. We've recently been studying the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. Uh, and that is partly, isn't it, about what we value, what we desire most. You know, make sure we have our priorities right. Don't desire the things of this world and the temporary things that will pass away. Book of Ecclesiastes, you know, well, it's all about how meaningless so many things are to do with this life throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. These are all warnings uh, about what the rich man stood for, building a treasure in this life and riches in this life and ignoring God. So that's the introduction to the rich man. He's the first character in the story. And then we're introduced to Lazarus. He's a beggar who has, well, nothing, literally nothing. We see, don't we, that he's got nowhere to stay. It says that he's laid outside the gate of the rich man. Uh, He had nothing to eat. He longed to eat the rich man's leftovers. Uh, It seems that he was disabled in some way. You know, it says that he'd been laid at the gate. He had had to be taken there, that he couldn't get there under his own steam, and he would have been in in constant physical pain uh, and indignity. You know, uh, it says that his body was covered with sores, and the dogs came to lick his sores. You know, what a a situation for for this man to be in. And he probably would have been somebody that others kept at a distance from, and certainly to whom the rich man paid no attention as he came and went out of his house, and and Lazarus is, is lying there as he passed. He had no status. He was accustomed to suffering, no doubt. And I guess he'd learned not to chase fulfillment in this life. That is Lazarus. And the Pharisees would be thinking, well, you know, here was someone who who God had 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 a curse on. You know, here was somebody who perhaps had committed a sin that had brought God's judgment on him in this life. But we need to remember, don't we? It's clear from the rest of the story that Lazarus was a child of God. Uh, And it's often the case, isn't it, that we see that uh, some of the most godly people uh, suffer the greatest affliction in this life, while the ungodly often seem to have things much easier. Uh, So in a sense, we shouldn't be surprised by this pattern. You know, uh, as early as the psalm, Psalm 73 and verse 3, it says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Perhaps you can identify with some of that. You know, why am I having these troubles as a believer? Uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament, David, you know, David was described as a man after God's own heart. God loved him deeply. Yet we know, don't we, that he had trouble throughout his life. Uh, more recently, well, relatively more recently, in the 1700s, William Cooper, the great hymn writer, uh, suffered uh, massive depression and even insanity and great doubts about his faith. Uh, and of course, our own Lord Jesus, he uh, suffered Throughout his life, opposition from the religious leaders, rejection by the world. Uh, And he himself said, you know, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. God's people can expect hardship and difficulty. And certainly that was the case with Lazarus. So we've been introduced to these two contrasting characters, one living for this life, clearly one with treasure in heaven. And we do well to examine ourselves in the light of this. You know, what are we truly living for? So that's our first point. We see riches and poverty. 
And then we go on in verses 22 to 23. It all gets switched around, doesn't it? We see poverty and riches. Verse 22, the, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Well, it's all got changed around, hasn't it? Of course, they both die. Happens to everybody. Lazarus goes to heaven. He had his treasure in the right place. It says the rich man dies and was buried. Did you notice that? It doesn't say what happened to Lazarus. He wouldn't have had a funeral. But you can imagine the, uh, the rich man would have had a probably an extravagant event to mark the end of his life. Maybe a, a big uh, gravestone to mark his, mark his uh, grave where he would have been buried. Similar to some of the ones you can see in, in Loughborough Cemetery if you take a look. But wait, it says here in verse 23 that the rich man went to hell. Well, the Pharisees would have been thinking... You know, how did that happen? They would have been shocked by that. This man who appeared to have so much blessing in this life. You know, how could that happen? And it says, doesn't it, that apparently the rich man is immediately in anguish. It doesn't say that there's any waiting room or limbo. He just goes straight there and he's in torment. That's the word it uses, torment. And that's consistent with the rest of the Bible, isn't it? It says that Hell is a place where there'll be suffering and pain. Won't be a big party, as some people think. It won't be annihilation, the end of everything. Or it won't be an unfeeling experience. It'll be conscious, unending pain, a, tr- a truly awful prospect. And the rich man went there because he lived for himself. You know, he was content without God. It wasn't just that he was rich. And in a similar way, you know, the outcome for Lazarus. Uh, isn't a reward for his hardship in this life. It might be easy to think, you know, well, Lazarus endured so much in this life, things had to get better for him. You know, he, he kind of deserves a reward. But of course, you know, that's not how it works. It's not how it works at all. It's all about the state of the heart and where is our treasure. We can see, can't we, the rich man had everything he wanted in this life. He lived with no regard to God. But conversely, Lazarus had nothing in this life, but gained everything because he trusted in God. So we can see from this that everyone, whoever they are, believes in heaven and hell at some point. You know, whether that's in this life or in the next, the reality dawns. And here we see that happening for the rich man as he he becomes poor and Lazarus gets the inheritance, the inheritance that was reserved for those who are faithful to Jesus Christ. So that's our second point, poverty and riches. The third thing we see in verses 24 to 26 is a prayer for self, a prayer for self. Verse 24, so the rich man called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. The rich man prays. Interesting to note, this is the only example of a prayer in the Bible that was made to a saint. Now, of course, it wouldn't have been effective. You know, God is the only hearer and answerer of prayer. Um, But we can see, can't we, that it was earnest and heartfelt. You know, the the rich man is saying, give me some relief, you know, any tiny bit of relief. Uh, And he calls him Father Abraham, doesn't he? He's kind of saying, look, you know, I'm a Jew. I'm one of your descendants. Please show mercy to one of your own. Some of the mercy, interestingly, that he himself hadn't shown to Lazarus previously. 
And even now he still seems to see himself as superior to Lazarus, uh, even though Lazarus is in heaven and the rich man is where he is. He still sees Lazarus as his servant. Send Lazarus to give me some relief. And of course, we can we can remember, can't we, that the water is a metaphor here. You know, real water wouldn't help him because the suffering isn't physical thirst. But it's a measure of the torment, I think, the torment that he was in, that he doesn't ask for a lot of water. You know, just the slightest relief, just the smallest drop would mean everything to him based on the condition he's in. And surely you've got to think that, that that torment and suffering is made worse by the knowledge and regret that he wasted the opportunity to acknowledge God while he could, while he was still alive. You know, the time for turning from his sin has now gone uh, and he was stuck with the consequences. And we see that in verse 26, don't we? Abraham's reply, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The answer was final. You know, you've had your good things and the outcome can't be changed. What a chilling situation. And this is why the story is here. You know, Jesus wanted his hearers to appreciate the horror of hell and, and what it meant. And we need to appreciate that too, you know, and earnestly be, pre- be praying to be saved from it. Uh, you know, in the same way that we see the rich man praying earnestly here, we need our conscience awakened to the reality. Uh, and of course, it's far, far better for us if that happens in this life. Let's turn to Psalm 116. <clears throat> Those verses that we read at the beginning of the service. Psalm 116. This is uh, written by David. And it's, it's not like some of the Psalms, you can uh, pin them to a particular event that happened in David's life uh, when he wrote a particular Psalm. This is not one of those, but we do know that it was written by him. And uh, on the face of it, it looks quite straightforward, doesn't it? It looks like, you know, David's had trouble, he's called on the Lord, uh, the Lord has saved him. But I think there's more going on here. You know, he, uh, David talks about how he cried for mercy in verse 1. Uh, as a result of being saved and God hearing his prayer, he says, you know, I could, he can say, I love the Lord. But what was the pain that drove David to pray in the first place? Well, I think we can say that it was the same as what caused the rich man to cry for water. There in verse 3, he says, the anguish of the grave, this expression, the anguish of the grave came upon me. That was the reason why David called on the Lord. We can say, can't we, that David was a man after God's own heart. You know, we, we know that expression. God loved him greatly. Well, how did God show his love? You know, was it by giving him an easy life and allowing him to live in luxury and enjoyment every day like the rich man? Well, no, it was by allowing him to be taken hold of by the anguish of the grave to experience this terror. Uh, and no doubt hard, though, those afflic- afflictions would have been for David. They were actually the greatest blessing that God could have given him because it meant that David threw himself on the Lord and cried for mercy and was saved. And for that reason, David effectively says, you know, it was good that I was afflicted. And So in the same way for us, you know, we should see affliction as a sign of God's blessing because as it did with David, it will drive us to be dependent on God and to throw ourselves on him. And we'll, we'll see 
those afflictions, perhaps easier seen in retrospect, as a sign of God's love to us. Uh, and perhaps, you know, perhaps you can identify with that. Perhaps there are things in your life that you can see, look back on and identify them as, yeah, that was a time when God was dealing with me, was teaching me dependence on him. Now, it's not to belittle, of course, some of the difficulties that we go through and some of the sufferings that we have to uh, endure. But uh, when we are in the thick of it, it's helpful to know, isn't it, that everything is part of God's plan uh, and he's doing it so that we can trust him more deeply and more fully. Romans 8.28 reminds us, doesn't it, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And how much better that we feel this anguish, the anguish of the grave and trusting God now than live a life of ease without feeling our need of God, as the rich man did. I remember reading the story of the hare and tortoise as a child. You'll be familiar with that story. And uh, I wonder what you think about it. You know, perhaps you're, you're pleased with the fact that the, the slow and steady and faithful tortoise wins, you know, and is successful, sort of plodding away. I remember feeling quite irritated and annoyed by the result. You know, you, you kind of want to give the hare a good shake and say, why did you squander, you know, your advantage? You had all the benefits and all the opportunity. Um, but he was just careless, you know, and by the time he woke up and realized it was too late. Well, of course, that's what makes it a great story. But I think there's a little bit of that when we read this uh, story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke. You know, it kind of makes you annoyed and you say you want to say to the rich man, why did you pass up the opportunity that you had? Uh, and now you've realized that, you know, these things are true. You understood what reality is, but it's too late. And it kind of gets under your skin a bit, doesn't it? Well, we need that. You know, we need it to get to us uh, and help us to see the danger of squandering the opportunity to be saved and coming to that realization too late. So we need to learn from the rich man's earnest prayer for himself. And we need to pray earnestly for ourselves that we will be saved, that God would have mercy on us repeatedly. And in that way, that we should make sure of our salvation. So that's the third point, a prayer for self. And then fourthly, we come to a prayer for others. The rich man prays again, verse 27. He answered, the rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham, uh, no, we'll stop there. That's the next uh, section. The rich man realizes, doesn't he, that his family were heading for the same destination. This is the first sign that the rich man thinks about anybody but himself. So at least we can say, you know, that he had had that in him, that he kind of, he, he showed some kind of care for his brothers. And again, he asks to send Lazarus. He says, well, really, you know, those, my brothers don't have enough information uh, about this place. That's the real problem. You know, so could you send Lazarus to go and tell them what it's really like so that they don't come? It's not repentance, is it? It's realization. He's suddenly seen the future and realizes what's going to happen. Uh, and is kind of suddenly sparked into, into action. He realizes his responsibility. You know, that these, these people that he had had contact with, his close family, he realizes that his example of how he'd lived had done nothing to help them. In fact, probably the reverse. It had kind of reinforced his view that this life is all there is. Uh, and he'd never really thought or considered about their souls or where they were heading. 
his life had said to them, live for pleasure. You know, this is it. Well, perhaps he was also thinking, look, you know, if they come here too and I've done nothing to help them, that is really going to add to my guilt and regret. Uh, so at least, you know, it's better that I try and do what I can to warn them now while I've got, still got a chance. Well, this is another opportunity, isn't it, to consider ourselves, to examine ourselves. How does the rich man's example match our own lives? Who are we responsible for? Responsible in the sense of who are we put in touch with that we should be sharing the gospel truth with? You know, you think of family, friends, neighbours, those in our kind of circle of contact, people we work with, employees even, people who we can say are put there intentionally in order that we can share the gospel with them. Do we consider their souls? Do we see them as sinners heading for judgment? You know, the reality of judgment. And we need to reflect too, is our example encouraging them or discouraging them? If they look at our lives, does it show that we are storing up treasure in heaven and acting as salt and light? Matthew 5 reminds us, doesn't it? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Or are we living for the moment, you know, with no visible sign that eternity really matters? Well, again, we need to pray, don't we, that the reality of things to come, the anguish of the grave, would get hold of us. And not only will that drive us to depend on God ourselves, but help us to see the danger that others are in and make us want to warn them and point them to Jesus Christ. It's funny, the things, the reminders that you get, isn't it, and the things that you see as you're out and about, we were out in the Outwoods a few weeks ago and, and uh, noticed a new park bench had been put in place. And uh, often with, with benches, uh, people pay, don't they, to dedicate them to a particular person. And uh, usually the names, you know, you don't recognize them. Uh, but this one I realized was somebody I was at school with, somebody who was in my class uh, and uh, uh, lost touch with a long time ago. But somebody who died in you know, 2019, just a couple of years ago. And then again, out we were out walking on Haddon Way over the, uh, the south side of Loughborough. And on the corner there, there's another bench there, with, again, with a little plaque on it. And it's a, an old maths teacher of mine when I was at Burley College. Again, just brings it home to you, you know, these people who, who are now gone. And it makes you think, what was my example to them? Did I take the opportunity to make it clear to them the reality of what's going to happen and judgment to come? Or was my life really much like anybody else's and said that this is all there is? Well, it's sobering thinking of that, isn't it? And we need to reflect on that for ourselves. And this story ought to impress on us the urgency of the situation. It's an urgent thing. People are, are dying all the time. So that like the rich man, we might pray for others. That's what we need to do, pray for others. But unlike the rich man, do it while it, we still have time and before it's too late. So that's the fourth point, a prayer for others. And fifthly and finally, we come to uh, verses 29 and 31. And this tells us that scripture is all we need. Scripture is all we need. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Here we have the answer to the rich man's second prayer. And the answer to why people go to eternal punishment. It's because they don't listen to the word of God. 
the answer is, uh, the reply to his prayer is, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. Of course, it's referring to the Old Testament, isn't it? That's what they would have had at that time. Jesus' listeners, certainly the Pharisees, would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. And it would have told them all about God, you know, as the creator of all things. It would have told them about him being the lawgiver and the judge. They would know from the Old Testament about their own sinfulness and the need to repent. They would understand that substitution is the way that God deals with sin. They would know about a coming Messiah who would end the curse and provide redemption uh, and in fulfillment the promise that had been given to Abraham and his descendants. And if they believed the Old Testament, they would know that Jesus was that Messiah. And they would know about their own need to repent and believe in him. Jesus is saying scripture is sufficient. It's enough. You know, they have all they need. And in the same way, we have all we need, don't we? The Bible is what we need. God's revealed truth telling us the gospel. I remember uh, Stuart Olliot, the preacher, describing once sharing the gospel with somebody personally, somebody who was approaching the end of their life, and they wanted to know more about what was, what was going to happen. And uh, Stuart was able to share the gospel with him, and, and he, he described it as telling this person everything they needed to know to get from earth to heaven. That's what he called it, everything, everything he needed to know to get to earth from heaven, which I, I thought was a good way of putting it. That is the gospel, isn't it? That is the Bible. It tells us all that we need to know to be saved. And Moses and the prophets help us because they all point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord Jesus is the key to being content in this life, regardless of our circumstances. You know, we, we need to be, uh, avoid being like the rich man, being content without God. Uh, that was the rich man, and look what happened to him. But Jesus is also the key to being rich in the next life, being saved from eternal punishment for ourselves and others. Well, let us be warned by this story. We need to listen to God's word and need to warn and encourage others to do the same. And praise God that through Jesus, mercy and forgiveness are available if we trust in him. 1 John 1 verse 7 tells us, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Well, let's thank God for that now, and let's come to him in prayer. Let's all pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. Uh, shocking uh, though it is, we thank you that it, it tells us the reality of judgment to come, that there is one of two destinations that we're headed for. And uh, we pray that this truth would get hold of us, that we would um, obey what we've read and heard about tonight, uh, that we wouldn't go on being content without God, that we would, uh, as David did, cry out for mercy, that we would feel the anguish of the grave and recognize the reality to come, and that we'd pray uh, repeatedly for mercy and forgiveness for both ourselves and for others, for those whom we're responsible for, for those whom we're put into contact with. Help us to feel that sense of urgency and the need to uh, warn them and uh, tell them of the gospel truth. We do thank you so much for the gospel truth. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is that way of salvation through him that's open to all who call on him. 
And so we pray that many people would and that you would use us in bringing the gospel as individuals, uh, as a church, uh, as your people here. Uh, help us to uh, f- urgently feel the need to uh, tell people to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd be at work by the power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts uh, and save people. We do pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.